This podcast channel is about you, successful international entrepreneurs, successful expats, successful investors, sponsored by HCJ Contacts. So thank you for joining us, HCJ.tax, our weekly live stream where we talk all things international tax. So today we are talking about U.S. taxes for international entrepreneurs and expats. So for those joining us for the first time, please be reminded that this is being recorded and it will be available afterwards on our website, hgj.tax, YouTube, Spotify, SoundCloud, wherever it is you get your favorite podcast, we put it on over 15 platforms, so it'll be available there. If you do not want your image, for those that are on Zoom, if you do not want your image to appear, it's pretty simple. You need to keep your camera switched off. It's all good. So I sent an email and for those who signed up using Inventbrite, you know that you had the option of submitting questions. So for those who did submit your questions, we got probably about 12 questions, I think. Thank you for those submissions. For those who want to do so now, feel free to type in the box below and I will get to them in the order in which I see them. So if you're on YouTube or if you're on Facebook, you can just type in the comment box if you comment box below. If you're on Zoom, same thing applies. Okay, please bear in mind that this is not advice. <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, because we, we're licensed, we you know we have to abide by certain rules. This is not advice. Nobody can give you advice in just a few minutes, right? And especially when that professional does know your circumstances inside out. So what we're having is a general conversation about general principles. And hopefully the takeaway is that you will understand certain key concepts and principles that you take to your preferred tax advisory team. And they'll give you actionable steps. But right now we're just having a general conversation. You can consider it education or you can consider it entertainment, but it is not advice. So that's how we stay out of trouble. So, okay, great, fine. So I'm gonna start at, okay, first question. So we are hoping address some of the following issues. So the first issue, when one spouse is an American expat living abroad and the other is a foreign national, a non-resident alien with no intention of applying for a U.S. green card or pursuing U.S. citizenship. When is it better to file jointly and when is it better for the U.S. spouse to file separately? That's a great question. We get that all the time. Uh, I know some people, they, they file single when they're married, but that, that's kind of like misrepresenting yourself on your tax form, right? So if it is you're married to a non-American, your options are really married filing separately or married filing jointly or head of household if, if, if the kids have uh, social security numbers. So head of household is also an option. So the reason why married filing jointly is attractive is because you, I mean, you get the ease of e-filing depending on what system your tax team is working on. But more importantly, the, the tax code and the tax tables in terms of income tax, they are created or construed in such a way that those who file jointly 
get preferential tax treatment to those who file separately. So basically, depending on what your uh, what how you how you earn your income, you can actually pay less when you pay less in taxes if you file jointly as opposed to separately based on the same earned income. Uh, we can debate whether that's right or wrong, but that's just the way it is. The code is constructed in such a way it encourages you to file jointly. And there's certain tax credits. So that's in terms of the actual tax rates. And then there's certain tax credits that are only available when you file jointly as opposed to when you file separately. So the tax code kind of puts pressure on you to file jointly. So that's the upside. Now, the downside is that when you file jointly with your non-US spouse, uh, you need to include their income. So it'll be a section 6013G election. And we, you'd wonder, well, well hold on, why would uh, an, uh, my non-US spouse ever be interested in getting into the US tax net? Again, that's a good question. And we get that all the time. The reason being, and I think you know this because you kind of hinted at it in the question, the way you phrased it. It's a good idea if the intent is to pursue US residency. So if at some point in time you think that your non-US spouse would join you in moving to the US, then it makes sense to file jointly because then you know they, they have a tax ID and they, they have a, a footprint. They're, they're no longer, because otherwise they simply don't exist in terms of you know if they wanna get uh, a, a cell phone plan, if they wanna you know, lease a car, you know, they have no credit score, they have no proof of income, they have nothing, they simply don't exist and it'll take a while for them to create a digital footprint in the US. So by filing jointly, it's a, a good step strategically if your non-US spouse hopes to join you in moving to the US. If it is not the case, which you have clearly said it's not the case, then you're right. You, it's best to file separately rather than bring your non-US spouse's income into the US tax net. So that's, that's an option. Another way of getting the preferential tax rates that come with filing jointly is if you have US kids with social security numbers. And that, I know that's a big issue because some of uh, my clients who have had kids in the past year or two with the issues with the US embassies abroad, it's been, it's been a bit challenging to register births abroad and get socials and et cetera. So assuming, <clears throat> assuming that you do have social for the kids, you can file head of household. And that gives you better tax treatment than married filing jointly. So I hope that answers your question. Next, in the above scenario, so he or she has like different points under the same uh, scenario, okay? So in the above scenario, if the foreign national spouse is the business owner entrepreneur and the American spouse files as married filing separately, is there any U.S. tax obligation for the foreign spouse or for the foreign business? So once it's a foreign business and the American spouse is in no way, shape or form involved in that foreign business, then you're correct. And it's completely 100% managed and controlled by the non-U.S. spouse. Then, and you, especially if you have no signing authority for that bank account, you have no shareholding, you don't get any distributions in the form of salary, dividends, bonuses, consulting fees, whatever. You have zero to do with that foreign company. You're right. It will not appear on the radar. And, the, and assuming, of course, the company has no nexus with the US, then it's out of uh, the remit of the IRS. So I hope that answers that question. Next 
bullet point. The implications of owning property abroad or having foreign bank accounts, personal or signatory and business accounts. Okay. If you own, uh, I'll deal with the bank accounts first, right? So I think most people should be familiar with the foreign bank account report, uh, otherwise known as FBARS or FinCEN114. That's the actual form number. So it's not new. I know people be, behave like, where, where did this all come from? This, I think this, deal, this dates back to 1970, 1971 with the Bank Secrecy Act. So any US exposed person be uh, whether it be an individual or a corporate entity, so a natural or legal person, if you can control a bank account outside of the US and it's above a certain threshold, so the aggregate maximum balance has to hit a certain threshold, which is $10,000, then all the accounts are reportable. Even those that are with below that, uh, that balance or those that may be even dormant, everything becomes reportable. So, and, and signature authority notice, even, even if you are not the ultimate beneficial owner of that account. So for example, because you're a senior uh, employee with your employer, whatever company you work for, you may, it's not uncommon, you may have signing authority over company accounts, even though it may be, you know, it's one of those corporate accounts where you require two signatures and you're just one of them. Even that needs to be declared. So basically, yes, once the maximum aggregate balance exceeds that threshold, the FBARs are triggered. And if it exceeds a higher threshold for forms that came out under FATCA, uh, Form 8938, I think it is. Uh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, they would commonly know as the, the FATCA form. So those, so that is triggered by a higher aggregate balance, but you need to speak to your tax professionals. So the bottom line is you should, if you're signing for, or you have control over any bank accounts outside of the US, it may be reportable to speak to your tax team. In terms of owning real estate, uh, if, it, if it is income producing real estate, then yes, obviously as a, a US person, you are subject to tax on your worldwide income. Right, so that, that goes without saying. So if it is that you have an investment property outside, of the, of, the, of the United States, then you need to declare any income that you may have that derives from that property, you know, rental income, of course. All right, so if, and, and okay, if it's just, then some people say, I don't, I don't know what type of real estate you have, whether it is income producing or whether it's owner occupied, if it is just a piece of land or, or whatever. So the two scenarios typically where it's reported on your tax return, it's where that foreign real estate is income producing and when you hold it through a structure. So when you are holding it through a structure, it may trigger that form, 80, it may trigger disclosure on the form 8938, which I mentioned before, which is a statement of foreign financial assets, right? So it's similar to the FBARs, but the FBARs go to a separate team within Treasury, which is, I think, is a financial crimes enforcement network. And 8938, which to some extent, it's, there's some variations, but it mirrors the FBARs, that goes to the IRS. So speak to, speak to your, your tax team, right? If you have investments in real estate outside of the US and you control foreign accounts. And especially when it comes to foreign accounts, they the penalty for non-disclosure could be pretty aggressive. And it seems counterintuitive, but 
the way the IRS works, when it comes to domestic tax issues, it's fine, right? It's about paying your taxes, right? That, that's what the, the prime motivation appears to be. Now, when it comes to international tax, it's, it's different. The, the prime motivation is disclosure. And how do we know that? We know that because if you don't pay taxes, then there might be another payment penalty. There may be interest. You know, penalty, you know, interest, and depending on the amount, it may not be, uh, may not be a big hit to to your bank account, right? But if you don't declare that you have a bank account outside of the U.S., it's not just civil, but it could be criminal penalties as well. And the civil penalties it could be up to fifty percent of the unreported balance. And the example we like to give is there was a, I think he was a, a medical professional. I think he was a dentist in Florida, in South Florida. And there are lots of cases, but this, because we have an office in Florida, it kind of was like on our radar. So this guy, he had an account in an offshore jurisdiction outside of the US. And I think he had about a million dollars in it and he didn't report it. So the IRS held that he didn't report this million dollars for three years. So penalties, 50% of the unreported balance. So the penalty is $1.5 million in an account with $1 million in it. So they, again, the penalties for non-disclosure for foreign financial assets are pretty aggressive. So it's important. And the penalties for not disclosing uh, investments in certain foreign entities that exceed a certain threshold, it could be aggressive as well. You know, like the form 5471 is $10,000 per year. And, and don't think the IRS are afraid to levy those penalties. They do. So when it comes to living outside of the US as a US taxpayer, the emphasis is on disclosure. Because some of these things, I mean, this, just disclosing the fact that you have bank accounts in whatever country you're in, is not a big deal. It has no usually, I mean, once you're paying tax on the interest, you declare it on your Schedule B and, you, and whatever, there is no real tax consequence to having money outside. They just want to know what you're doing. It's all about data and they just want to know what you're doing. So please keep that in mind. Let's scroll down. How does owning a house instead of renting abroad affect the foreign housing exclusion deduction? If filing separately and the property is solely owned by the foreign spouse and the American, the American rent from, yeah. I see where you're going with that. <clears throat> the biggest, if it is that you are an employee. So we have, we have lots of business owners. We have lots of entrepreneurs. You know, we have lots of business owners. We also have expats as, as clients. If it is you're an expat, you are an employee with a foreign company, then the biggest benefit that you would enjoy working out of the outside of the US is that section 911 foreign earned income exclusion, right? Which goes up each year with inflation, but for last year as you're doing your returns this year, I think it's like $112,000. So like the first $112,000 would be excluded from US taxes, which is depending on your income, that could be a big deal. Now, on top of that, another benefit that you get working outside of the U.S. is that housing deduction. If it is that you own the house, you don't get the housing deduction. If, you own, if you're renting that rental payment, so there's a big table. So, and depending on where you live, the allowance for, for that housing deduction uh, it varies depending on where you are. So for example, 
if you're in a low cost jurisdiction uh, where the cost of living, like so let's say you're living in Ecuador, it might be, it'll probably be a lower amount than let's say Monaco or Singapore, which is where I'm based. So depending on where you are, the housing deduction varies. So, and that, that is a deduction for the rent you pay when, you, when you're working abroad. So if it is you own the home or your, your partner or your, your spouse, your foreign spouse, if he or she owns their home, then you don't get that. So as, a, as to, for what you're asking, whether you can rent from your spouse, uh, that's, that seems like it'll be difficult. It'll be a difficult one to, you, you can't just, basically, I would imagine that there needs to be some sort of formal contract, right? Because you sign your, your, your U.S. tax return on the penalty of perjuring. At any point in time, the IRS can ask you to substantiate the figures that you provide, right? So if they ask, oh, you pay rent? Well, where's the rental contract? You need to prove that, right? So you'd need to probably speak to a, an attorney licensed in the jurisdiction in which you reside and get a formal rental agreement done. And conversely, when your spouse receives that income, he or she may need to declare that on her or his personal tax return in that jurisdiction. So, you know, and it, it, it could be, I, I would consult uh, a legal, uh, a local professional in, in terms of getting something drafted up, if that's what you want to pursue. Uh, but I guess it is possible, uh, technically, but... Yeah, but I, I get advice, but speak to a tax professional as well as a, a local uh, legal professional as well. Okay. Implications of being an owner, investor, or director in a foreign company. The U.S. tax considerations. Okay. As I mentioned earlier, the U.S. tax code, when it comes to international taxes, all about disclosure. So if it is that you were involved in a foreign partnership, make sure you get that form 8865 once you trigger it, or the form 5471 for a foreign company. And the money that you invested into the company, form 926, make sure you, you know, just transparency, uh, make sure you report it once your investment is above whatever the requisite threshold is for disclosure. So there's nothing wrong with investing outside of the US. Absolutely nothing, as long as not one of those countries which are sanctioned, uh, which are subject to U.S. sanctions. So like, no, uh, you probably want to avoid Iran, North Korea, Venezuela. So assuming that it's a, a jurisdiction which the U.S. has no problem, then yeah, absolutely, you know, put your capital to work, but make sure it's disclosure in your U.S. tax return. So speak to your tax team to make sure that the investment is properly disclosed the bank accounts that may be tied to that investment are properly disclosed. The whatever distributions you get are properly disclosed as well. Otherwise, there's nothing wrong with investing in businesses outside of the US. Next question. Is it better to be self-employed, get income from your foreign, in terms of extracting income from your foreign business? Is it better to be self-employed? Or is it better to incorporate a company and be on the payroll as an employee of that foreign business? Great question. It depends. It really depends on what your strategy is. You can do either. I, you know, assuming that it is a valid going concern and, and, and whatever, 
you have a, this business, it's, it's not, it's, it's something that is commercially viable, right? So you're doing legitimate business in whatever jurisdiction it is outside of the US. If it is that you uh, work as like an independent contractor, like the equivalent of a 1099 independent contractor, you'd be subject to 15.3% self-employment tax. So whatever income you get as an independent contractor, that will be employee, you would have to pay that 15.3% uh, to the IRS, that self-employment tax. So it really depends because then you may trigger social charges in whichever jurisdiction that you are, because you have to be somewhere, right? So what I would do is speak to a professional, a tax team, who's familiar not just with the US implications, but also the tax implications of the jurisdiction in which you now find yourself. And you wanna run two scenarios, a scenario in which, hey, I'm just an independent contractor to this company. And what does that look like from, because you, you're trying to tax optimize now. It's not just, you're not just thinking IRS, IRS. You're thinking about the internal revenue service and you're also thinking about the tax uh, burden in the jurisdiction in which you now find yourself, assuming that you're not in a tax-free jurisdiction like Dubai, right? That you owe someone of the other Emirates, the seven Emirates. So assuming that you are in a jurisdiction where there's some sort of tax responsibilities, you'd want to speak with a team that's familiar with both the US and local, and you'd want to optimize across the two. So it may mean being independent, may mean remaining independent. It may mean uh, being an employee. It may be mean neither and you're just a, a business owner and you extract it in the form of dividends, maybe it's more tax efficient to pull it out as dividends. I don't know, but you'd need, I recommend that you speak to a tax team that understands both and they will come up with a tax efficient way of pulling, extracting the money out or reinvesting because maybe you wanna reinvest, maybe you wanna plow back in those profits. So they'll need to understand what your objectives are and work with you to find the most tax efficient way of achieving your business objectives. All right, uh, moving up. Okay, I see some questions down here. Let me jump to, from, because I have two laptops open. So I'm gonna jump to this one now. Does uh, uh, an LLC owned by a non-resident alien is it a disregarded entity? Does the, okay, so does the owner need to pay any taxes in the US? Good question, and that's one, we, that's one of those that we get every day as well. And you know how it goes. The answer is it depends, right? If it is that you are a non-resident alien and you just have a US LLC and you have no nexus with the US, you have no permanent establishment with the US, a technical term, meaning let's say you have no boots on the ground, you have no dependent agents, you have no warehousing of physical product, you're not selling any physical product into the US, you have no US source income at all. If you have nothing to do with the US aside from just, you just happen to pick a US LLC for whatever reason, then no there would be no US tax obligation. However, you must be somewhere. 
And most countries, most jurisdictions, aside from a totally tax-free jurisdiction, of course, they have management and control rules, which means that even though a company is incorporated somewhere else, if management and control is being exercised from within their jurisdiction, they reserve the right to tax that company as if it were a domestic company. So if you incorporate a company, uh, an LLC in Delaware or Nevada or Wyoming or one of the other popular states for incorporation for a number of reasons, and you run that company from Singapore or you run that company from London or from you know Norway or wherever it is you may find yourself, Costa Rica, Colombia, that company, if management and control is being exercised domestically, the tax authority reserves the right to tax that foreign company as if it were local. Because if you are the key decision maker, you within their borders, that has tax consequences for the company, obviously for you, but for the company as well. Which is why the whole remote working thing, it, you know, we always tell people you need to take advice because they are, they are always, they're usually implications once you cross national borders. So, okay, I'm just moving up. Oh, this is a long question. All right. Uh, all right, I'll, I'll, go to, I'll go to an easier one first, a shorter one. So as a US expat working W2 and or 1099 remotely for a US company and living in a country, a country that does not tax the expat on their income earned outside of that country and does not meet the 330 day residency test. Is there any difference on the 1040 than if the individual lived in the US the whole year? Okay, so if it is, well, if, if it is you, uh, okay. So whether you're W2 or 1099, you're in one of those jurisdictions. So for example, I mean, aside from uh, like Emirates, there are certain visas, for example, Barbados is pretty popular with some of, some of our clients. It's a jurisdiction where they give you a year long visa, uh, then quite a number of jurisdictions, but uh, I think Bermuda, Brazil, uh, several European countries. But what stands out about Barbados is that you are relieved of responsibility for paying taxes under their local tax regime. So as a result of getting that visa to come in, how does that affect you as an American expat? Say, for example, in, in Barbados, just as an example, right? Just to make it more tangible. Yes, your tax return would look different from if you had remained in the US. How? Well, you would enjoy what I mentioned before that section 911 foreign and income exclusion just based on the physical presence test. So you are physically outside of the US uh, for most of the year and you're not in the US for more than let's say 30 days then you may benefit from the physical presence test and enjoy that foreign income exclusion. So you get to exclude uh, it moves on inflation, but it's around 112 right now, plus the housing deduction. So it can definitely work to your benefit. So I, I know people are playing the arbitrage within the U.S. So you move from New York or California to Florida or Texas, and you save obviously on the state taxes. But if you move outside of the U.S., the big win as an employee or an independent contractor is that Section 911 foreign earned income exclusion plus housing deduction. That's a big win. So yes. Hope that helps. Someone else is asking, if you missed reporting a foreign account to the IRS, 
Let me fill that on. Is there a way to stop reporting without a penalty? So not sure what you mean, but if it is that if you were required to report it on the FBARS, the FinCEN 114 that we mentioned before, and you didn't, then you should really speak to a tax professional about filing retroactively and getting it straight. Because remember that the most countries have signed a bilateral agreement with the United States, which is commonly known as, as FATCA, the Financial Account Tax Compliance Act. This is since, I think it's like 2011 or so. Yeah, I think it's around 2000, either 2009. I think it's 2011. So basically, the US has gone around the world signing bilateral agreements with most countries, countries that you did not expect to sign have signed. So I'm talking about like Russia has signed, China has signed. So what it means is that all of these jurisdictions that signed with the US, they have waived their local bank secrecy laws and the FATCA. And all registered financial institutions within their borders are legally required to look at their account holders. And if any of them they suspect of being US exposed, even if like you're dual and you show another passport or identity document to open that account, but that financial institution suspects that you are US exposed, they're legally required to report you to the US government. And we help financial institutions do that. So we know it's a pretty easy process. It's an XML. And so it's it's almost like a, a, an electronic transfer of data. So one would assume, I don't know, but one would assume that on the other side, when it gets arrives at Treasury, there's some sort of reconciliation where if you say that you don't have any accounts in Hong Kong, and yet a Hong Kong financial institution reports that you do all, or let's say in Singapore, and the Singaporean financial institution reports that you do, then it creates a, a sort of like a, a mismatch, right? So the point is that you'd want the IRS to hear from you or well, Treasury or whether it be the IRS or FinCEN to hear from you first rather than from a financial institution that has custody of your account. So you'd want to speak to a, a US tax team about filing retroactively. The streamlined is the option if your non-compliance is deemed to be non-willful, your compliance was de uh, deemed to be willful, then you'd have to look at some other options which require more legal support. So yeah, so I think just remaining silent is probably not the best option. Or just, you know, I know some people online just recommend go forward, forget the past, just go forward. Again, I recommend when it comes to the IRS you, and the federal government, you don't wanna mess with them, you know, just. It's just disclosure, right? They just want to know what you have. Just tell them what you want to have, right? What, what you have. You know, there's no downside really by being 100% straight with them. So hope that helps. Moving down. Okay, this is a long one. <laughs> so I have an electric scooter company I'm launching in Bermuda. My app developer said that due to technical reasons, I can't use a local remittance provider in my country for payment processing. Instead, I have to go through Stripe Atlas, which requires me to set up a Delaware company. I'm doing that. Sorry, the language is a bit weird. Okay, so given the option of doing an LLC or C-Corp, which would be better for me? Also, what taxes will I have to comply with or pay as I'm not American? And the only thing I'm doing is processing payments with this US company. My thought process 
is to charge a management fee or IP licensing usage fee from the Mimbuna company to the Delaware company and charge 99% or 100% fee on their earnings. What are my options or best advice that you have to legally avoid and minimize taxes due? Okay. Now, that, that, that's a tricky one. If it is, you said that you're not American and assuming that you have no US nexus and you just want US payment processing in, in this scenario, I don't necessarily see any US tax consequences, uh, assuming that you open a bank account as well. Then if it is, you, you have a balance and there's interest earned on the account, that interest will be subject to a 30% FBAP withholding. So it'll be subject to withholding. That's the US tax consequence there. So from a purely US perspective, just opening an LLC for the purpose of payment processing shouldn't trigger any tax consequences. But I think you'd want to have, again, sit down with a, a tax professional because you'd need to consider the Bermuda perspective. And then you've asked whether in the US it'll be an LLC or C Corp. Uh, again, that depends. So we've had clients that have gone through similar situations. Now, it's not typically, I, I don't know the you know, are you okay? You're using Stripe. Sometimes the payment processor may require that there be a US person. If it's a foreign company, our experience is that they may require that you onboard a US citizen or resident. So basically, someone who's tax resident in the US to act as the responsible person. So I don't know whether that's the case with in your scenario. So if that, but we've seen it happen with other clients, if that is the case, then it gets a bit complicated and the structure needs to be really well thought of. But on the surface, based on the limited of, uh, info, information that you shared, I, I don't see any US tax consequences, but I think a, a, a proper sit down with a tax team may be necessary because you want to consider the cross-border effect. Putting IP, creating, once once IP is introduced, that uh, creates a layer of complexity. So if you put IP in the US, definitely there's going to be a consequence to that because you have royalties. It needs to be valued. It need, you have a transfer pricing agreement because it's a related party transaction. The royalty will be subject to FDAP withholding. FDAP is fixed determinable annual and periodic. So it's basically a withholding tax on money that leaves the US to go to uh, a foreign uh, person, legal or natural. So it gets a bit complicated. You, it, you're better off sitting with someone and, and, getting, and getting proper advice. But on the surface, based on what you've described, I don't see any US tax consequence. Scrolling down. Okay. I didn't hear a response to mine. Did I miss it as I emailed it and I put it in the chat? Okay. I don't know what question. Yes, we did a long question before, but I don't know whether this was yours. Sorry. Okay. So you're saying that Bermuda is tax-free. Okay. Well, then you don't need to worry about Bermuda. You just need to worry about the US, but if you're going to put, so this, uh, are you the same person with a scooter company? Yes, you are. Okay. So then you should have no problems once you're just doing payment processing. But again, it gets complicated if you need to have 
a US person to act as a responsible person for the payment processing, or if you intend to put IP in the US. But on the surface, just keeping it a super simple, just a LLC, simply for payment processing, it should not trigger any tax consequences. Scrolling down. I'm a, a non-US person with investments in the UK and the EU. Residents in Portugal, because it's a popular jurisdiction, uh, destination for Americans, obviously, Portugal. Uh, resident in Portugal, because I hold a US bank account, I'm asked by my bank to fill a W8 band to continue banking with the US bank. Any concerns? Okay. A W, so the W forms are, oh, they are, they're kind of controversial, even though they're meant to be simple. First of all, they don't go to the IRS. They, they're, held, they're, they're held by the financial institution that requested it as a sort of indemnification. So it's where you declare your tax status, like how are you being taxed? If it is that you are not a US person, then you correct. It'll be a W8BEN, or if it is that you're banking through a company that you own and control, it might be a W8BEN-E. So e stands for entity. So yeah, the W8BEN. It should not create uh, any, no, it should not create any US tax liability if a US bank account is asking you for a W8BEN. So I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there. It, it, it shouldn't, right? Again, I don't know the nature of the bank account. Is it like an investment account? Is it, you know, you know, is it a trading account? So yeah, it, it really depends. But assuming that it's a normal checking or savings account, you just want to keep it in US dollars, then there should be no US tax consequences for your so doing. All right. Hope that helps. Okay. All right. Somebody's saying they're in Costa Rica. Okay. Within a year, do, do losses in a foreign-owned company such as lease payments or building costs, et cetera, offset capital gains and equities or American real estate? So, right. So when you have different buckets or different categories of income, it's, it's not automatic that you can offset one against the other. So if you have... Uh, you know, an ordinary loss, you can't necessarily offset that against a capital gain, for example. So does loss, okay, so if it's a foreign company, so lease payments and building costs, that foreign company needs to prepare financials in line with the rules of the jurisdiction in which is incorporated, right? So I don't know whether in Costa Rica, I don't know what part of the world you're in, but the, the, the company needs to follow, follow the laws of that jurisdiction in which it's incorporated and in which it's operating, right? It needs to follow domestic rules. Now, and those domestic rules would say what is allowable, what can be deducted from revenue. So you need to follow those rules. Normally the rules are... Uh, comply, I, I don't know what part of the world you are, but there are international accounting standards. So they don't really vary that much. Sometimes they do a bit in terms of for tax calculations, but in terms of 
just the preparation of that income statement or profit and loss account and the balance sheet, it, it tends to be pretty standard. So you need to follow those rules. Now, in terms of the US tax consequences of it, I'm assuming that you are a US person, then it's, it can get complicated, of course, but it you are taxed to the extent that you receive a distribution from that company, whether it be in the form of a salary or consulting fee or dividends, then that is reported in your returns and you pay tax. Now, there are some deemed distribution rules, depending on the nature of your company. You, you may trigger something called the PFIC rules, Passive Foreign Investment Company rules. You may trigger the guilty rules, global intangible low tax income tax. You may trigger subpart F. So there are some deemed distributions, which mean that you can be taxed to your personal US tax return for a company you, you control. Even if you did not receive a distribution, you are deemed to receive a distribution and therefore you didn't get the cash. So you're paying taxes on phantom income to the IRS. So that can happen. So you wanna get advice to make sure you don't fall into that uh, situation. Or if you do fall into that situation, there are ways of mitigating and managing it. But otherwise, if it is you have a company, a foreign-owned company, corporation, as you've said, that corporation will prepare its financials in line with domestic regulations. Uh, I hope that helps. Next question. Hi, I'm an American living outside the U.S. My source of income is from U.S.-based companies for performing marketing consulting services. Do you recommend registering an LLC in my home state in the U.S. to protect my personal assets from being taken away in case I get sued? If so, will I need to pay state taxes and federal corporate tax on my earnings? So great question. And it's a smart question because you know, which is something that a lot of people misunderstand, right? That having an LLC is not a tax play. It's not a tax benefit. There's usually no benefit from a tax perspective of having an LLC. An LLC in the U.S. is a limited liability company, and it does what it says. It limits your liability in the event that there's some sort of dispute or there's some sort of lawsuit, right? It's to protect you and to protect your assets from uh, any problems that may arise. So it's about asset protection, not tax optimization, generally speaking. So if it is that you're performing the services outside of the US, then the question is, where are you performing those services, right? Because when you have a cross-border situation like that, remember we spoke earlier about management and control. So even if you were, let's hypothetically say that you were to form that LLC in the US, but you sit in Singapore, management and control is being exercised in Singapore. If you do it in Malaysia or Bali or Australia, or wherever it is, if management and control is being done domestically within those jurisdictions, even though the company is incorporated elsewhere, the local tax authority has the right to tax it as if it were local. So uh, in, you know, in coming up with what's the best tax strategy for you from a tax optimization perspective, as well as asset protection. We need to understand more about the business model, particularly where are you? And do you, have a, do, you do it all yourself as a marketing consultant or do you have a team? If so where's your team? But let's assume that you're a one-person show and you sit in London or let's say Singapore. So uh, I don't know where you are, anywhere, right? So then you'd probably want to speak to an advisor who understands both the U.S. and domestic rules. 
but chances are they will probably say, you know what, you need to incorporate a company in Singapore, in London, in the UK, wherever it is you are. Now, if it is, I know, I know I have some clients that do that sort of work. And then the problem they have is that their clients in the US like dealing with an LLC for a number of reasons, whatever. So then what you could perhaps discuss with your advisor is you form a company in wherever you are, like London or Singapore, to be compliant to local rules. But then that company that you form can have a subsidiary in the US. You can form an LLC. Uh, as a subsidiary of that, that, that company. So uh, you can have that type of conversation so that it, you, know, you get your asset protection, you get your tax optimization. You can, you, of course, there's compliance. You comply with local rules, which is important. You don't want to get kicked out of wherever you are. And then you, you, your clients feel happy and comfortable that they're dealing with a US LLC. So that, that's the sort of conversation I'd encourage you to have with your tax team. Okay. Two, 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 scrolling down. Okay, yeah. Do all members of a foreign-owned multi-member LLC have to get an ITIN to file U.S. taxes? Or only the responsible party or members of the LLC are foreigners to file U.S. taxes? Okay, if it is a multi-member LLC, like you've said, and if there is no nexus with the US and all the members are individuals and there's no corporate member, then this company may not have to do a 1065. It may not have to do a partnership return. So maybe a tax return may not be necessary, but even though a tax return is not necessary, you may wanna to talk to your tax advisor about doing a protective return where you file a basically you file a nil return so uh, it has the advantage of you know should in the future the tax authorities in the u.s take the position that a tax return should have been filed at least you preserve your rights so you you're not you won't be accused of never having filed a return so at least you preserve the rights to uh to then properly file one if they deem for whatever reason that you should have filed and then you get to deduct the expenses and 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 you know so you'd be taxed on the net rather than the gross so anyway so on the surface if it is that you have no us nexus and all all of you, your colleagues or fellow uh partners in, in the business outside of the us there there is none but if it is that you do have us source income maybe you've all invested in rental properties or, or whatever the case may be then, and you have your source income and a tax return is due, then yes, you probably want to get an ITIN. You probably want to get, you probably need to get ITINs because as, as you know, the, uh, the LLC is a pass-through. It's like a weird American thing. It's a hybrid entity because you, obviously you're not American. So the equivalent in another common law jurisdiction would be like a, a partnership, like a limited partnership. That's like the closest conceptually. So it is a pass-through. So if it is a, that LLC does have US source income and has to file a 1065 partnership return, it files a return, but it produces a statement called a K-1, which you as an individual partner, you may have to then file your own return. Now there is some, there's an option for something called a composite return 
where uh, uh, a return can be filed in all the states for you as foreign partners, but that gets a bit complicated. But bottom line is that, yes, you guys may need to get items because you guys may need to file US tax returns if it is your foreign partners in this LLC and this LLC has US source income. Hope that helps. Moving on. Uh, yes, you can book a session with us. So I think you would have got, you guys would have got an email from Hannah. So you can just email her or I emailed, yeah, the, we had like a hundred RSVPs or so. So uh, I would have emailed some of you guys last night as well, or yesterday, depending on which time zone you're in. If you want to set up a consult with us, we do offer pay consults over Zoom. So please just, just reply to that email and we can set something up. That's, that's no problem at all. Okay, so you're welcome. Is there a difference? Yeah, we can, we can discuss that, yeah. Okay, so you move around three months in Brazil, three months in Mexico, for example. So this is the marketing consultant. Uh, we'd probably be best having a consult, right? So, okay. And I just need to move on to the next, because we have a lot of questions and I know we cannot answer all the questions and I'm gonna apologize in advance. And, you know, we do these live streams every week and every week we have more questions than we have time for. But again, it's not about giving you answers. It's about giving you principles that you can take to your own advisors to create an actionable plan for yourself. So moving on. So Lee is asking, my questions are from the perspective of a Singaporean who is considering moving to the U.S. Since CPF accounts accrue interest annually, is the interest taxable, assuming that I don't make any withdrawals from my CPF account since I've not reached retirement age? To put it another way, is CPF only taxable upon withdrawal? Similarly, for investments that have in SRS funds, which is a supplementary retirement scheme, which is designed for retirement, are these gains, capital growth, and dividends taxable if the money is not withdrawn and kept in the SRS account? Good question. We deal with this all the time as well. So, you know, CPF, the MPF, the ORSOs, so the retirement plans from Singapore, Malaysia, uh, Hong Kong, Japan, of course, the supers, superannuations in Australia. We, we deal with them. Uh, to answer your question specifically, the CPF is normally declared on your schedule B, so you're correct. So any interest, sorry, no question, no calls right now. So any interest, so what you do is you pull your CPF statement you download it from the government portal, uh, the annual January to December one, and it shows uh, what interest has been earned. And that's reported on your schedule B, as well as remember we mentioned bank accounts need to be reported or financial accounts. So that goes in your F bars as well. And if you trigger an 8938, it goes there as well. The SRS, same thing, any gains, a fully taxable bottom line is that once you enter the US, uh, for uh, as a green card holder, permanent resident, or uh, on with you with the company, the company is relocating you. Then yes, you will be subject to taxes on your worldwide income. So that means when you rent out your condo in Singapore, yes, it will be subject to U.S. taxes. If you were to sell your condo, 
you have to pay capital gains on that as well. Everything you earn, if you have any like in other investments, maybe you have shares in a restaurant or a bar or whatever in Singapore, whatever that needs to be declared as well that you know your interest in that company so everything becomes taxable and reportable when you move to the u.s so what we do is we advocate uh pre-immigration planning so sitting with a tax team who understand, understands both in your case singapore and the u.s and what we when we do it we go through line by line you you give me like a balance sheet tell me what like normally you get like a spreadsheet and we look at it on zoom and we go through one by one what will be the tax implications of your move to the US. If it is you, you're happy with that, thumbs up, leave it as is. If it is you don't like what the tax consequences are, we can perhaps look at some planning opportunities, some ways of mitigating what the tax consequences would be. So I advocate before you make that big move to the US, big move, because you know in Singapore we're spoiled in that uh, you know, taxes are relatively light. So when you move to the US, it's the complete opposite. You're gonna be taxed on everything. So you would wanna get a strategy session in with a, a tax team that understands both. Hope that helps. Next question, moving down. Okay. So foreigners setting up an LLC only to facilitate strike payments. Okay, so this is, someone else asking what payment processing i know it's a, it's a big deal if i heard correctly you mentioned that if your bank account earns interest and the interest is taxable if that's correct should foreigners try to ensure all earnings went to okay so again it really depends on so for those who who have this payment processing angle you're not american but you know you want access to the american banking and uh, payment processing infrastructure a lot more options and many other countries, right? So I, I get that. It really depends. Uh, yes, but yes, any interest that is earned on a bank account in the US will be subject to withholding, right? So as to whether that means then you should minimize the balances, normally you need to work with whoever your payment processor is because they may stipulate a minimum balance that you need to keep a minimum balance, you need to keep a float of whatever in a US account. You need to appoint a U.S. person to be the responsible person. And it really depends. But just generally speaking, keeping it super simple, if it is that you have a bank account in the U.S. and you are not a U.S. person, the interest will be subject to withholding tax. But we're in a relatively low interest rate environment. So hopefully the balance that you need to maintain isn't that high. So therefore the tax burden wouldn't be that uh, aggressive either. Okay. I'm switching away from Zoom. I'm looking at other questions on other platforms. I know we just have five minutes. Okay. I'm sorry. Right. So someone is not American and they were married to a U.S. person who had financial investment accounts in the U.S., and the US person has passed away and I'm, I'm sorry for your loss. So yes, this is something we deal with pretty regularly, unfortunately, because I wrote an article on how they, so the estate would need, in order for you, because the, the bottom line is that you as the non-American spouse, you find that in, you cannot have access 
to your departed spouse's financial assets in the US or on US platforms, unless you get something called a clearance certificate from the Internal Revenue Service. Again, this, you know, estate planning is a bit of a morbid topic, but we are really big on estate planning because the, the process takes a long time. You have to file a, a form 706 NA for, you know, for, for you to access that, you know, uh, and then they, you know, then it has to go to the IRS and you have to get a clearance certificate on a form 5173. The entire process sometimes takes more than a year. Or even we have cases where someone may have worked in the US, like for example, the person from Singapore is going to the US on a work assignment. They may have invested in something, you know, a retirement plan or, or whatever, or just an investment account. They leave the US and they leave it behind, right? And then when they pass their spouse, has a hard time getting to it because this entire process of getting a transfer certificate actually is taking more than a year now. So it's, it's not easy at all. You know, I wrote, we wrote an article, which is why we get a lot of these inquiries that apparently Google scores the article pretty highly. So have a look at the article that it's on our website, hug.tax. We have like nearly 2000 articles, all free and international tax issues. And we have over a thousand videos on our YouTube channel as well. So have a look, you can do a search, pick up the stuff that's relevant to you, you can read. If it is that you would like us to help you with the 706 NE or the 5173 to get the transfer certificate so you can get access to your, your, your late spouse's account, just, just reach out and just let us know, I'm sorry. Okay, next question. Where should I set up an offshore company? I, I don't know, I guess, you know, people, it's natural because every time, like if you watch some spy or some show, or some movie, they talk about offshore accounts and offshore companies and dodge intact, well, people think that you just set up an account and with a company that's incorporated in some far flung island and you automatically are gonna get some sort of tax benefit. Because of the, something called economic substance and then permanent establishment. It doesn't work like that. Perhaps historically did like back in the eighties and maybe nineties, it was a thing you could do that, but definitely not now. And I know movies glamorize it, but it really doesn't work that way anymore. So in order for us to advise or anybody, not just us, anybody to advise you on setting up an offshore company, I guess, presumably just a company in a jurisdiction other than the one in which you reside. We need to understand the business model. We need to understand the supply chain, you know, where your employees, where your, where is your warehousing, where's your data processing, where are you as a key decision maker? And we can recommend a, a structure that is compliant with the rules and hopefully will be tax optimized. But the idea, especially if you're a US person, it'd be very, very hard for you to pay zero taxes. It's possible. I've seen it. I have clients that do. I have clients that pay as much tax as they choose to, but it is a result of a lot of tax planning. And, you know, I, I consider myself part of what we call the income defense industry. So you need to get some really heavy hitters from the income defense industry to help you set something up like that. But I've seen it happen but it's not as simple as just going online, forming a company in Island XYZ 
with a bank account and ta-da, you're going to be saving. No, especially as long as you have that U.S. passport. It really doesn't work that way. I spoke to you earlier about the assortment of uh, deferral tools, uh, tools that the IRS, the Internal Revenue Service has for people who want to defer paying taxes using foreign companies. I mean, we have subpart F since the 1950s and 60s. In the 1980s, the PFIC regime was created and under President Trump, we have the guilty regime. It's not that easy. It's, 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 it's super difficult. But anyway, we have come to the end of our hour, hgj.tax. We do these live streams every week, different, slightly different international tax topic every week. I think next week we do US-Australia uh, cross-border stuff. If you need to reach out to us, please just go to hgj.tax or you can reply to the email from Hannah or you can email help at hgj.tax. This is being recorded. It will be available on the website, on the YouTube channel, Spotify, iTunes, Amazon, wherever it is you get your favorite podcast, you will be able to get it as well. Thank you. Have a good evening, day, morning, depending on where you are. See you next time. Bye-bye. Here are four ways we can help you. Number one, sign up for free webinars on U.S. Expat Texas and International Entrepreneur Texas at www.htj.tex. Number two, stream premium educational videos at www.hcj.tax. Number three, contact us for tax optimization consult over Zoom. Number four, high net worth. We can quote for doing your U.S. international taxes returns. Our books and upcoming events are available at htj.tax. Please subscribe, like, share, and comment below. Email us at help at to engage us to advise on international tax or business matters.